Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, it's great to be here this morning. It's great to see so many of you back in church, and it's great to be joined by so many of you online. Today we're beginning a new series, calling it AD 30. It's basically a series in the life of Christ. It will be mostly chronological. If you've studied the Gospels, you may or may not know this, but many times the Gospel writers connected things thematically. It wasn't always chronological, but uh, it'll be a mostly chronological going through the life of Christ since there's a lot there. There's four Gospels. We'll probably break at times. Uh, but today I've entitled our message, Jesus Among Other Gods. It's the title of a fairly significant apologetics book, Defending Christianity. And it's probably the most important question that any of us ask in our personal lives is where do we prioritize Jesus as it relates to our faith? One author writes, a friend of mine was a professor at an Ivy League school. He told me about a conversation he overheard. The head of the astronomy department was speaking to the dean of the divinity school. The astronomy professor said, now let's face it, in religion, what it all boils down to very simply is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. It's the golden rule, right? Like all of religion is just the golden rule. The dean of the divinity school said, yes, I suppose that's true. Just as in astronomy, it all boils down to one thing. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. (laughs) Nothing is simple about religion. And that astronomer was making the greatest mistake of all, which is made of many people today who believe all religions are basically the same. He saw all religion that way. He viewed them as all essentially different brands representing the same basic product, and if at the end of that there's one God who really doesn't care which brand we come to him through, that's just fine. The problem is each religion in the world makes very different claims. They all represent very different views of God, very different views of history, very different views of salvation, and they basically all claim to exclusively be right. The apostles and other eyewitnesses of Jesus' life wrote during a polytheistic era, very much like our pluralism, where you have all these competing truths and the predominant philosophy out there is nothing really is objectively true, something can be true for you but not true for me. Well, it was similar in the era of the apostles. It was polytheism, a belief in many gods. And when Rome would conquer a new part of the known world back then, they didn't destroy the religious system. They integrated it into sort of Roman philosophy, mythology, and religion. It was a polytheistic culture. So people had little confidence in the concept of religious confidence. In fact, one of the greatest passages in Scripture which reflects this indirectly is when Jesus is being questioned by Pilate, and Jesus says, you know, I'm here to testify to the truth, and et cetera, et cetera, and Pilate responds so honestly, what is truth? What is truth? And I think he meant it. He wasn't being, well, he was a little sarcastic, but he meant it. In the world he grew up in, how would he ever know that Jesus represented something different because there were so many competing philosophies, mythologies, and religions? And we live in that same kind of world today. Actually, probably not as bad, believe it or not. 
But the apostles knew that Jesus was not just another mythological figure. The miraculous events that surrounded him screamed out that heaven had come to earth. These were objective realities. Jesus was a person in history. And they believed that those objective realities needed to be either believed or rejected. Sean McDowell writes about this. He says, Jesus' resurrection either happened or it didn't. It's an objective reality. It cannot be true for one person and false for another. To prove this point, he related the following experiment. I placed a jar of marbles in front of my students and asked, how many marbles are in the jar? They responded with different guesses, 221, 168, and so on. And after giving them the correct number, 188, I asked, which of you is closest to being right? Well, they all agreed that 168 was the closest guess, they understood and agreed that the number of marbles was a matter of, of objective fact and not one determined by personal preference. And then I passed out starburst candies to each student and asked which flavor is right. As you might expect, they all felt this to be a nonsense question because each person had a preference that was right for them. That is correct, I concluded. The right flavor, which is red by the way, the right flavor has to do with a person's preferences. It's a matter of subjective opinion or personal preference. It's not an objective fact, like how many marbles are in the jar. Then I asked, are religious claims objective facts, like the marbles, or are they only a matter of personal opinion, like the candy? Most students concluded that religious claims belonged in the category of candy preference. There's nothing objective. It's all a matter of preference. Which do you prefer? I then opened the door for us to discuss the objective claims of Christianity. I pointed out that Christianity is based on an objective historical fact, the resurrection of Jesus. And I reminded them that while many people may reject the historical resurrection of Jesus, it's not the type of claim that can be true for you, but not true for me. The tomb was either empty on the third day or it was occupied. There's really no middle ground. Before anyone can grasp the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus, he or she must realize it's a matter of objective fact, not personal preference. It's the marbles, not the candy. Historical facts, eyewitnesses to those historical facts are the reasons the gospel writers put pen to scroll. So four gospel writers accumulated four somewhat unique perspectives on Jesus. They had a lot of overlapping material. They had some that was unique, and I'll talk about that in a moment as well. They were intended for four different audiences with an absolute belief that they had walked with God's Son, they were writing what they personally saw, or they found eyewitnesses tracked them down to get their stories. And today I want to explore basically their introductions of Jesus. Kind of the big picture. A little bit of a survey today. I'm going to look at one text but talk about many more. So we're in the big picture of what the apostles felt they needed to communicate to people to defend the idea that Jesus is superior to all other gods and belief systems. 
The gospel writers didn't include the same material. None of the gospels are exactly the same. But the cumulative testimony, as they introduce the idea of Jesus, the person of Jesus, is really overwhelming and comes at the proof about Jesus from many different perspectives. And I want to look at that all at once so you get sort of the wave of power for the credibility of who Jesus is and who he needs to be in our lives. I want to read John chapter 1. Verses 1 to 18, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. John chapter 1. Now John, just incidentally, does the least amount of proving who Jesus was from history because John really isn't concerned about uh, the Jews as much as the Gentiles in who he sent his gospel to. So he doesn't try to make Jesus, Jesus a Jewish Messiah like Matthew does. He's more concerned about Jesus being the Son of God. We'll talk about that in a few moments. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. So Jesus was part of creation. He was a creative, he was a creating being in that situation. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. We're talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. He came to his own, the Jewish nation, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Just want to look at four different gospel perspectives, gospel proofs about who Jesus was, all from the introductions that they give about Jesus. First, Jesus is an in-the-flesh explanation of God. There's a really interesting little word in verse 18. It's actually a big deal. If you went through a, a college or seminary course on hermeneutics or homiletics, so hermeneutics is the science of interpreting Scripture. Homiletics is how you're taught to put a sermon together. And there's a really interesting word in verse 18. It, it's translated here that he has explained him. In other words, Jesus is an explanation of the Father. I don't love that translation. I don't think there's a perfect word for it. But, but it. but it comes from a word that we talk about in hermeneutics and homiletics regularly. The word is, so the word in the Greek here is exegesato. And the word we talk about a lot is exegesis. What exegesis is, it's you going to the Bible. The word ex means out. Jesus is like to read. So when you go to the Bible, the goal is to read out of the Scriptures an accurate rendition of what the author was intending. That's exegesis. It is, it is whoever stands in this pulpit's primary job to exegete, to read out the Scriptures. 
Now, what's interesting is there's another word that's very common in college and seminary classes. That's called eisegesis. That's called Scripture Twisting 101, where we read into the Scriptures things that aren't there. That's a no-no. Exegesis, good. Eisegesis, naughty. All right, so anyway, that was kind of keeping it real simple, right? All right, so don't do eisegesis, but we do that because we want our beliefs to fit into the Scriptures. We twist them a little bit sometimes to get where we want to go. That's the word that's used of Jesus sort of fleshing out for us in humanity what God is like. In other words, Jesus explains or interprets God for us. He reflects his nature. He reflects his attitudes. He reflects what he thinks of humanity. He reads out God as the Son of God. And John gives us several examples, even in his introduction, before you get to the narratives or the stories that Jesus was a part of, he gives us many examples. He says Jesus was a creator. He's not a recent product. He's probably reflecting some of the mythology of his day. He's not a recent product of two gods getting together and having a third god, like in Greek and Roman mythology. He's not a product of a god having a physical relationship with a human, and therefore they produce this semi-god. He was always God from the beginning. He was there at creation. He was an active agent in it. The whole trinity was there. Verse 3, he brings spiritual life. Verse 4, he's a reflection of moral and ethical perfection. He was the light in the darkness. Verse 12, he brings those who believe in him into God's family. Verse 14, John himself had actually had a unique glimpse of Jesus' glory. Once when he was with Jesus, he saw like the light, the glory of God that he would have had in heaven was shining on Jesus. He said, we've actually beheld his glory. We've seen him almost like he would have been in heaven just one time. Jesus enshrined in light. Verse 17, he epitomized grace and truth. We never saw that before. We got the law from Moses. With Jesus, we see grace and truth. Jesus exegetes God. We read out of Jesus' life who God is. It was incomplete. I mean, he's completely God, but we only had him for a few years. He only spoke on limited subjects. He had given up the glories of heaven but he was and is the Son of God. He reads out. He explains for us. He's our best rendition of understanding everything about God. Well, this is a unique opening to a gospel. Some have expressed concern about why the gospels are so unique and and why you get these different stories and why some of the stories actually include different details. And I, I want to just touch on that because we're going to be looking through the Gospels, all of them, in this series. And as you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. They share a lot of information. John is sort of unique. Really, very little in John is in the other Gospels. But a lot of people have questioned the historicity of the Gospels when they're trying to pick apart differences in the stories as one gospel writer emphasizes certain things that other gospel writers don't. In his book, Faith is Like Skydiving, Rick Madsen illustrates the reliability of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and resurrection by drawing a horizontal spectrum on an easel pad. And he labels one pole zero, the other 100%. Then he asks people to imagine the four friends, that four friends named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John attend a sporting event together. And afterward, they write down what they saw. If 0% of the four reports harmonized with each other, we'd think the guys got their wires crossed and they attended separate events. Matthew reported on a baseball game. Mark reported on a football game. 
John and Luke reported on a hockey game. By contrast, if the accounts were 100% verbatim, or pretty close to it, we'd also be skeptical. We would think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John huddled in a room somewhere to fabricate a single harmonized account. But what if the reports were in the 70% range, roughly speaking? What if the broad contours of the stories are very similar, though some of the details different? Say Mark's account of the baseball game was the shortest and the most selective. Matthew's account was longer and more organized. Luke highlighted some of the underrated players and, and a distressed female fan who got beamed by a hockey puck. John's was the most philosophical about baseball. Despite these desperate, disparate angles, the reports had much in common. The New York Yankees beat the Minnesota Twins 8-4. to The game was played in Minneapolis. Such and such players were the GOATs, and one player in particular stood out as the clear hero of the game, knocking in all the team's runs and hitting a grand slam on the final out to seal an unbelievable come-from-behind victory. It seems to me we could feel pretty confident that this game actually took place and that its elements were truthful as reported by the four witnesses, and that's what we have in the four Gospels. They're emphasizing different details, but they all saw the same game. They're writing to different audiences. Matthew is writing to a largely Jewish audience, and you pick that up because it begins with a genealogy to prove that Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. Mark doesn't care about that. He's writing to Romans. Romans don't like Jewish uh, history. They don't like the Jews. They're not, you know, impressed with a conquered people. So it's a different emphasis. He begins with John the Baptist. Luke actually wrote to Theophilus, and he said, I'm going to give you the most comprehensive of all of the Gospels. I'm going back to the beginning. I'm interviewing everyone. You're going to have the most complete Gospel, and that's what he gave us. John writes to the Gentile world. He ignores the Old Testament in many ways. He emphasizes Christ's deity. He's concerned that Jesus is God, not as much that Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. And he's elevating Jesus above Roman philosophies and deities. So they all had a different point. John's point is Jesus is an in-the-flesh explanation of God. But the other disciples, the other apostles go other directions. The second point, Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy. There was a World War II traitor called David Greenglass. After World War II, as you know, there was sort of the Cold War Many of you were alive for that. Many of you don't know what a Cold War is. It was not last year in Calgary. That was not the Cold War. Anyway, so he was a spy for the Soviet Union. He went to Mexico after World War II. And his conspirators arranged to help him by planning a meeting with the secretary of the Soviet ambassador in Mexico City. Proper identification for both parties became vital. Greenglass was to identify himself with prearranged signs. These instructions were given to him and to the secretary so there'd be no possibility of making a mistake. And here were the signs. Once in Mexico City, he was to write a note to the secretary signing his name, I, his first name, Jackson. After three days, he was to go to the Plaza de, Lo, uh, de Colón in Mexico City. He was to stand before the statue of Columbus with his middle finger placed in a guidebook. When he was approached, he was to say it was a magnificent statue and that he was from Oklahoma. And since nobody in Mexico City is from Oklahoma, that should be the clincher. The secretary was to then give him a passport. The six prearranged signs worked. Why? Because you, you could never have all that randomness. Of course, it was him. He was the spy. With six identifying characteristics, it was impossible for the secretary not to identify Greenglass as the proper contact. How true, then, it must be that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, 
if he had 456 identifying characteristics in the Old Testament well in advance, and he fulfilled all of them. See, predictions about the future, predictions about the future that are made with specificity eliminate the concept of chance. They create certainty. Prophecies, predictions that come true, to me they're almost cousins to miracles. A miracle is a divine event that violates and overcomes the laws of nature. When Jesus healed somebody who's dying and, and he immediately healed them and they have a different diagnosis going forward, a different prognosis, that's a miracle. He overcame the laws of nature. When Jesus walked on water, it was a miracle, especially if you can do it on a week like this week. If you do it in the winter around here, it's not a miracle. But if you can walk on water in this heat, it's a miracle. You know there's no ice. That was a miracle. He overcame the laws of nature and gravity. A fulfilled prophecy is kind of miraculous too. It's not technically a miracle, but it involves God's absolute sovereign control over the future to bring about a future that he predicted and designated long ago. And there are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus Christ, all of which took place at least 400 years before his birth, because we have about 400 silent years, they call them, where there's no word from God, no miracles we're aware of from about 400 B.C. until the birth of Christ. Hundreds and hundreds of statements about Jesus. And in these statements, the apostles really recognize two tracks in particular, two that really, really matter. They all matter. But I want to highlight, too, that they point out in their, in their beginnings of their Gospels. There's the track of Jesus' national and family lineage, and there's sort of the track of his divinity or divine lineage. So we have prophecies. Genesis chapter 12, thousands of years ago. Prophecy to Abraham, that through him all nations on earth would be blessed. That's the, sort of the first hint of the Messiah through the Jewish nation. Genesis 49, it's narrowed down to the tribe of Judah that this, this great leader someday would be the Lion of Judah. That's a word about Jesus. I believe it's verse 10 of chapter 49. First Samuel, when David does something really wonderful for God, God says, you built a house for me, a temple? You want to build a temple for me? I'm going to build a temple for you. Your house, your physical lineage will go on forever. The Messiah will come through you. Both Matthew and Luke feel the need to prove to Jews in particular that Jesus fulfills those. So they trace his lineage. In the ancient world, that was incredibly important. You needed records to prove who you were, both if you were royalty as well as if you were in the priesthood, a priestly family. You needed to prove that your family was in the priesthood, your dad was a priest, et cetera, et cetera, because you, it wasn't based on calling, it was based on your parents. So it was incredibly important. And the gospel writers make this point. They trace Jesus and they say he, he's, he is the Jewish Messiah. They give all the evidence of it, both in Matthew and in Luke. They also go down this path of his divinity. In Genesis 3, second or third page in your Bible, where God says that the seed of the woman will defeat Satan someday. The seed of the woman is going to defeat Satan. Some would say that the Hebrew there excludes the possibility of a human father. On the third page of Scripture, you've got a promise that there will be a conquering hero someday who can't have an earthly father. Isaiah 7, 14, where it says the virgin will be with child, there's a definite article, the virgin, what virgin? It's looking back to Genesis 3, 15. Many scholars believe 
The result of this virgin giving birth will be Emmanuel, God with us. Both Matthew and Luke affirm Jesus as fulfilling these prophecies. They make it very clear that, they're, that he is fulfilling Isaiah 7, 14, and make it very clear that Joseph and Mary had no physical relationship until the birth of Jesus. They're authenticating what we see on the third page of the Bible. Hundreds of others exist, all the way down to the details of Jesus' death and burial. Isaiah 53 in particular, you know, other Old Testament prophets talk about how no bone in the Messiah will be broken. Do you know what normally happened during the crucifixion process and happened to the people on either side of Jesus? Because you didn't die quickly during a crucifixion, the soldiers would come along and they'd break your shins so that you could no longer lift yourself up because you lifted yourself up to keep from suffocating on a cross. It was normal to have broken bones in the crucifixion process, but not this Jesus that was prophesied hundreds of years before that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Crucifixion victims weren't buried. They were thrown in city dumps and eaten by dogs and crows. Or these massive ravens you have around here. Wow. Extreme suffering. All those kinds of things were predicted hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. Nobody pulls off prophecy except the one who can pull off history. There's incredible power in fulfilled prophecy. The apostles know it. They talk about it. Third, Jesus is accompanied by cosmic events. This is really underrated, but in the ancient world, this would have been a huge issue. We tend to underestimate this issue in, in both our scientific era, plus we think of cosmic events as having more to do with astrology and people in, you know, interpreting the stars in bad ways versus astronomy, the legitimate study of the stars. Some say it's a fulfillment of Numbers 24, 17. A star will arise from Jacob. A pagan prophet said that over a thousand years before Jesus. And on the night of Jesus' birth, we have this Bethlehem star. It guided the shepherds to the cave where Jesus was born. It was also seen in modern-day Iraq. Hundreds of years before that, Jews had been deported to Babylon. They brought their Old Testament and their beliefs about the future. There was a group of tribe or a group or a tribe of holy men that were there that were part of sort of the king's advisors, kind of a tribe of priests, wise men, magoi. They were astronomers as well, maybe astrologers a little bit. They were sort of looking for whatever they could find about the gods, about the future. They were looking for the fulfillment of Jewish prophecies that had been shared with them by Jews who had been deported there five or six, seven centuries before. They saw the star. They decided, we've been looking for this. We were told about this. Remember these, these Jews a long time ago gave us their holy books. There's going to be some leader coming from that part of the world, and we're to look for a star. They saw the star. They made the trip over many months, and they arrived after Jesus' birth. And so intimidating and threatened was Herod that he committed a genocide against all baby boys living in that region. Bethlehem was a small town, but probably 15 or 20 little boys, two and under, were butchered because of his jealousy. At Jesus' death, darkness took place from 12 to 3 in the afternoon. 
It was talked about for a couple hundred years by historians. At Jesus' resurrection, there was an earthquake. Cosmic phenomena spoke loudly in a superstitious ancient world, and God used that at Jesus' birth and at Jesus' death and at Jesus' resurrection. Well, is that, is that believable? I mean, you know, Bethlehem Star, if, I suppose if you're not a believer, it's a little bit of a fairy tale, right? Thallus, a historian of the Eastern Mediterranean in A.D. 52, quoted by Julius Africanus in A.D. 221. Thallus, in the third book of his histories, explains away the darkness as an eclipse of the sun. And he's talking about the darkness described in Matthew 15, 33, which took place during the crucifixion from noon till three. That's a Roman historian. He's not a Christian. Phlegon, Greek author from Carius, speaking about event in AD 33, he says this, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun. It became night in the sixth hour of the day. In Roman time, that would be noon. So that the stars even appeared in the heavens. So as Jesus hung on the cross and God is punishing him for the sins of the world, there's a blackout to the point you can see stars, says a secular historian, not a Christian. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia. One of the great problems the Bible faces is because it's a religious book, people think it must not be history. We should be interpreting ancient history through the Bible, not the other way around. It continues to be authenticated as legitimate history. The people who wrote it were very careful, knowing they were penning the words of God to make sure that we would get an accurate picture of what took place. And finally, Jesus authenticated by miracles. Throughout his whole life, but also surrounding his birth, there was the virgin birth, which was both a prophecy and a miracle. The angelic appearances to Mary and Joseph, the angels appearing to the shepherds. Zechariah, one of my favorite miracles, Zechariah. God says to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he's an old dude, and they hadn't been able to have children, and she's past an ability to have children. She's postmenopausal. And an angel comes to them and says, you know, you're going to have a, a, a baby, and it's going to be John the Baptist. And Zechariah didn't believe God through an angel, and so God said, I'm going to shut your mouth for nine months until this is born. I think it's one of the funniest things God has done in all of time, to shut up Zechariah. Elizabeth is rejoicing for nine months. She doesn't have to compete with him in conversation, socially, etc. It, it was just a hilarious miracle. And Luke recorded it. He wanted to get every detail. And this was the precursor to hundreds, if not thousands, of public and private miracles that all screamed, Emmanuel, God is with us. Leave no doubt. Listen to this definition of a miracle by an atheist skeptic. The skeptic and philosopher David Hume spoke famously against miracles, but he defined them as transgressions of the laws of nature by a particular volition of the deity or by the interposition of some invisible agent. I agree with him. That is an excellent definition from somebody who absolutely doesn't believe what we believe. It, it's as close to a standard definition of a miracle as you can find by a non-Christian. Miracles point to something outside of our natural realm. Here's the problem. That's a normal view of reality, but we have entered an abnormal time in history. 
We've entered a time where everything must be explainable through natural or materialistic means. So the very thing that God did to make sure we would know God is with us is the very thing that makes Christianity unpalatable to many Western minds. I love this. I've, I've shared this before. It's one of my favorite illustrations of this, so forgive me if you remember this. Did Jesus really walk on water? Maybe he just surfed on a patch of ice. That's the conclusion of a, 20, 000, a 2006 scientific article published in everyone's favorite bedtime reading item, the Journal of Paleolimnology. The article was titled, Is There a Paleolimnological Explanation for Walking on Water in the Sea of Galilee? Dr. Doran Knopf, an expert in oceanography and limnology, the study of lakes, and his co-author speculate that an odd combination of atmospheric conditions may cause rare patches of floating ice on the Sea of Galilee. According to their calculations, the chances of this floating ice phenomena happening are less than once every thousand years, but these odds didn't deter them from questioning whether Jesus walked on water after all. Perhaps Jesus surfed a patch of floating ice. What a genius. Sign me up for his blog. To be honest, I'm not sure which one would be more amazing. Surfing a piece of floating ice across the Sea of Galilee would take miraculous balance. And if those patches of ice appear only once every thousand years, it would take miraculous timing too. I'd love to see a high-def, slow-motion, instant replay of either one, Jesus walking on water or surfing on ice. But Dr. Knopf's theory may reveal more about the human psyche than the circumstances behind Jesus' miracle. We have a natural tendency to explain away what we can't explain. And that's why most of us miss the miracle. Why not just reject the Bible, Dr. Knopf? Why try to take a miracle that God is using to say, I am with you, Emmanuel, God with you, God with us? Why not just reject the story rather than try to explain away what was intended to give you faith? The disciples never imagined today. They gave us all the proof they could, but they couldn't imagine the way our scientific minds have decided to distort everything to the point there can't be a supernatural. They gave us great evidences. John says, God is exegeted in the person of Jesus. It's our best reading. It's our best explanation of God. The gospel writers all talk about fulfilled prophecy. They talk about these various cosmic events that accompanied Jesus as he came to earth. They talk about miracles. Is there anything else that God could have done to make it clearer that he has broken into history because of his great love for you and me and gave up everything, died, so that we could be made right with the Father? Well, I'll just close with three thoughts. First, all religions are not created equal. You know, there's four possible scenarios for each of us in our faith lives. One of them is that another religion is true, that we're all here and we actually got the wrong address and we got the wrong God and we really should be in another setting this morning or on a different day of the week. Another religion is true. Another possible scenario is Something else is true, and neither of the world's religions, none of them actually cover it. Not the four major ones, not the minor ones that, you know, sort of an agnosticism. There might be something that's truth, because something must be true, but it's unknowable. We don't have any information about God in our religious system. Another religion is true. Something's true, but we'll never figure it out. 
or the atheists are right, there is no God. I have a hard time with that one because I just don't know how you ever get first cause, what initiated everything. And the fourth possible scenario is Jesus is everything he is presented to be in the Bible, that this is accurate history, that those who walked with Jesus and saw him did everything they could to present history in a credible way so that we would find him. Second, Jesus is nothing unless he's everything. You know, Jesus, Jesus wants you. There's no middle ground in our lives. He wants you. He wants all of you. He wants your loyalties above everything else in life because of who he proved to be. Some years ago, the distinguished publishing house of Grosset and Dunlap brought together a panel of 28 educators and historians and asked them to select the 100 most significant events of history, then list those events in order of importance. After months of labor, this panel of 28 educators Historians reported that they considered the most significant event in history in their minds, this was probably done in America, so forgive them, was like, you know, the resettlement of America and its impact on the, on the world. I'll apologize for that later. Second place, the intervention of movable type by Gutenberg, so you've got sort of this ability to reprint material. Eleven different events tied for third place, five events tied for fourth place. Some of the events tying for fourth place, the development of ether, development of the x-ray, discovery of the airplane, the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus got fourth place. In today's world, he probably got a trophy, participation trophy. Good for Jesus. Jesus doesn't want a participation trophy. His father didn't raise him that way. Jesus is everything or he's nothing. There's no in-between with Jesus. All these historical facts are meant to be right in our faces saying, what will you do with Jesus among other gods? And finally, you are writing a gospel. What will your message be? We're going to talk about this more next week, the place we have in other people's lives, but all of us have a unique experience. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at the, sort of at the macro level, they're reflecting their personalities. They're reflecting their vocabulary. They're reflecting their experience with Jesus to their audience. And every one of us has that opportunity in life. Who is your audience? And what has Jesus done in you and for you to prepare you to get a message to others? How would you frame it? How can you take your experience and use it to touch the lives of somebody who doesn't know what to do with Jesus among other gods? God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your incredible love for us. And I, I personally believe that, that the Bible is your word, that it is inspired, you've guaranteed its accuracy, but even if I didn't believe that, I believe the history, I believe that these people wrote with incredible accuracy, knowing they were dealing with God in history, they wanted us to have an accurate reflection of who you are and how you've come to earth, what you're trying to do as you rescue the world and us as part of that. Give us open eyes and hearts to who you are as we Navigate your word in these coming months. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.